0: Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, tonight, we'll be reading from Psalm chapter 19. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some um, in the lobby. Feel, feel free to grab one of those and keep that as our gift to you. Um, once again, we'll be reading from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's rising is from the end of the heavens, and it's circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Betsy. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be back with you. So we are continuing our series in the Psalms, and the goal here is we want to become a people who develop the habit of drawing near to God across the full range of the emotions that we experience across the full range of human experience, because the Psalms teach us to do that. And today we're looking at Psalm 19, and some of you may remember, we looked at Psalm 19 a year and a half ago, it was during the first eight weeks or so as a church, and we looked at it because Psalm 19 gives a very clear doctrine of the word, Uh, you could say. So how does God speak? Why does God speak? And since we hold to God's word as a church, we looked at it. But today what we're going to do is not so much look at the doctrine of God's word as how does that reality speak to a very specific application? So how does the fact that God speaks to us and we can listen to him, um, how does it relate to one application in particular? And that's going to be the topic of uncertainty this evening. Uncertainty. Um, Put another way, what do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? And So uh, a number of years ago, I was faced with the decision of either—actually, it was the same week. I got a a job offer in the private sector, and I got presented with an opportunity to head into full-time vocational ministry. And I didn't know what to do. Like, I had no idea. Neither decision was that clear. And so a friend of mine who knows me well, he got me a book, and the title of the book is called Just Do Something— Just do something, right? Like the title of the book says it all. Some of you probably know who this person is who gave me the book. And, um, you know, it's one of those gifts where you're like, are you insulting me right now or helping me? Yes, okay. And because he knows I'm often a very indecisive person. This is one of the things that drives Kelsey nuts because I do it with trivial things. So if I'm packing for a short trip, just like like a long weekend somewhere, I'll stand in front of my dresser for an hour. Just do I want the blue shirt or the gray shirt? Do I want shorts or pants? Until finally, instead of packing a suitcase, I'd pack like, or uh, instead of just packing a little, you know, messenger bag or a backpack, I'd pack an entire suitcase because I essentially just take my dresser and dump it upside down in my suitcase so I could just have anything I want. Let me put some trombones in there too, because what if I want to play them while I'm on, you know, the long weekend? Like, I'm, I can be a very indecisive person. And so this book, you know, Just Do Something, it was, it was helpful. It gave Christian principles on how to make decisions. And one of the things he pointed out was, I think this is probably more so for modern believers, is we tend to either be tinkers. So we we tinker with jobs, we tinker with boyfriends and girlfriends, we tinker with churches, we tinker with places to live. Like, we rarely just settle down and commit to something long-term. Or we go the other way where we, like, we're in a perpetual state of stasis or paralysis. We're so afraid to make a decision because what if it's the wrong decision and it forever, like, you know shoots us off into a trajectory of regret and despair and you know it's, it's what we do sometimes right and so we, how do we go about knowing what to do when we don't know what to do and what's helpful is this psalm psalm 19 is it it doesn't lay out specifics okay take job a or b and into this relationship or don't what it does is it gives us principles for navigating things when they're not clear because there are so many things that we face, right? Do I move or not? How do I care for my aging parents? How much do I put into retirement? Do I take this job or not? So many things don't have a clear answer. So, how do we listen to the Lord and know what to do when we don't know what to do? Okay, so let's look at uh, three things the psalm tells us that we need to listen to as we make a decision in the gray. And D- this is David, uh, David the psalmist, who's going to say first, we need to listen to creation, second, we need to listen to the Bible. And then third, we need to listen to God's Spirit. First, we listen to creation. Second, we listen to the Bible. And then third, we listen to God's Spirit. Okay, so first, number one, these first six verses, we listen to creation. Verse one, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard." So what David's saying here is one of the ways that you listen to God is you look at creation. And so just as if you were to look at the painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, that would tell you something about Michelangelo, the artist. Or you can communicate non-verbally to somebody. So if Kelsey and I are out at a dinner with some people, and we've been at the dinner table for four hours, and Kelsey starts tapping my leg underneath the table, she's communicating something very clearly. You know, i.e. Steve, you better start the goodbye process, or your future does not look so good. <laughs> Just kidding, she doesn't She doesn't do that, um, usually. <laughs> but, right, so there's a lot that we can communicate to each other non-verbally. And David's saying, creation, even though it doesn't use words, it tells us very clear things about our Lord. Now, what you should be asking at this point is, okay, David, you know, I know you're a, sh- I know you're a shepherd boy, I know you love to work with sheep and lay on a grassy hill and look at the stars, but you're sounding like a hippie, okay? Like, I have real decisions. I have real problems I'm facing, and you're telling me to go outside on a mountaintop and look at a flower. Like, how is that going to help me know what to do when I don't know what to do? Well, here's how it helps. So look at verse one again. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What David's saying is, when you look at creation, like, what specific things does it tell you about our Lord? What does it tell, tell you about the power of God? What does it tell you about the wisdom of God? I was just speaking with one of our members this week, and he was saying when he goes to the ocean, and he just begins to dip his toes into the water, he literally starts to tremble with awe and fear because as he's looking out just at the sheer vastness and dominance of the ocean, and he realizes how puny he is compared to the waters, and then he thinks about how powerful must this God be who holds the waters— And two weeks ago, you all remember when we looked at Psalm 8 and we saw that uh, the Lord holds the heavens in his fingers. And we talked about, you know, even just our galaxy alone that has billions of solar systems in it. It's it's 105,000 light years across. Light travels around the earth seven times in one second. Moving that fast, it takes 105,000 years for light to go across our galaxy. And there's hundreds of billions of galaxies in our visible universe. Okay, and so... How does this relate to making decisions if you know the God that holds the power of the oceans and not even just holds the cosmos, but has the wisdom to hold the physics of it all at the big level and at the molecular level? What if you knew that this creator is is not just the creator, but he's also your redeemer? Right, so see how David ends the psalm, verse 14. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the same God who holds the heavens and who holds the atoms, this God became a human being in the person of Jesus, and he commanded the ocean while he was a human, but then he went to the cross to take your take on your sin in your place so that his father could become your father, and you, bec- you could become in, in union with him. So what does this do? Think about... So many of the decisions we have, um, I know some of you are are facing decisions with your parents who are aging. How do you care for them? Uh, Some of you are frightened to screw up your kids. Like, what if I make the wrong decision on how I raise my children? Some of you are facing really serious decisions with uh, deciding, am I gonna move or not? And when am I gonna move? And where am I gonna move? And career decisions. And the thing is, is so many of these decisions are, you know, we have angst as we think about them because we're important. But when you're making a decision in a state of fear, this leads to very bad decision-making. Because, right, when you're making a decision based on fear, you're either only going to think about yourself, right? How can I secure myself? How can I think about whether it's my personal happiness or my security? Or you're just not going to move at all because you're so scared to make the wrong decision. And what what David's getting at here is more than God telling you, choose job B or choose relationship C. What this psalm does is more than a specific answer, it gives us perspective, You see, so that we can make decisions not based on fear, but on trust. Because if this God is your Redeemer, you know what this means? If you know Jesus this morning, you cannot screw up your life. That's good news. That's good news. If you know Jesus, you cannot screw up your life. because he cares for you, he knows more than you, and even if things are bumpy now, he's promised that your life will end in praise. This was just a few months ago. I was talking with Jeff Toomer, and a number of you met him when he came here recently to preach, and I was was really scared with the decision I was making with respect to the church, and he just gave me a a very, you know, needed, you know, friendly slap across the face. He's like, Steve, one, you're giving yourself way too much credit. (laughs) B, remember God cares so much more about your church than you do. Things are gonna be fine. Okay, and so first, listen to creation. Look at creation. I you know the same God who made all of this is also your redeeming. And you cannot mess up your life, regardless of what decision you make if you're walking with Jesus. Okay, so you can exhale a little bit. Okay, that's the first thing. Listen to creation. Number two, we don't just listen to creation, we listen to God's word. And we see that here mainly in verses 7 through 10. And. Notice the language here that uh, David uses to describe uh, the Word of God. So verse 7, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. Uh, Verse 9, the rules of the Lord. So all these things are different ways of referring to Scripture and different ways that all put together, God gives us everything that we need to know Him and then to live as those who have been brought into His kingdom. And There are two things that David says here when you listen to the word of the Lord, uh, two things it gives you. And the first thing it gives you is wisdom, and the second thing you get is delight. Okay, so first you get wisdom. So there are many things that the Bible tells you about dealing with specific things where it helps you know what to do. Okay, so addiction, boredom, career, depression, envy, Finances, goal-setting, hope, identity, justice. We could keep going through the alphabet. Okay? we could be here all day. There are so many things that the Bible speaks to specifically. But more pertinent to today, also what the Bible gives us is it helps us know what to do in the gray um, when, it, when the Bible doesn't speak to specific things. And so the more that you spend time in the word, the more you don't just memorize like specific chapters and verses. But you begin to know the, you could call it, you begin to learn more the mood of the Bible. Like, in general, what would the Bible have to say about this, right? Because you're learning about the character, you're learning about the person of the God who wrote the Bible. So just like me with some of my best friends and with Kelsey, there are a lot of times where I know what they would think about something, even if they're not there to say it, because I know, I've spent so much time with them, and so there are times where I'm facing a decision, and I think, what would would Kelsey do here, or what would my friend, you know, Justin, do here, and so forth? And in the same way, the more we spend time in the Word, the more we just get a general idea of like the general contours of it, and what would Jesus do in this situation? And so let's talk about how this applies to, you could say, a more personal level um, when you're facing decisions that seem unclear, and then also a, a broader, more like, things that relate to societal concerns, right, and, and bigger things. So first. On a personal level, I think sometimes when we are facing a decision, we go to the Lord, and we say, God, tell me if I should choose A or B. Now, we should absolutely do that. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but often what God does more than just saying, hey, choose A or B, is he forms us into the kinds of people who make wise decisions. Okay, so think about it this way. It's, it's the difference between going to a world-renowned scholar and saying hey, can you write this paper for me on this topic? And so the difference between that and studying under that same scholar for 10 years so that you become the kind of person who can write the types of papers that he or she would write, you see? So the more time you spend, the more time you spend in God's Word, the more you learn to make wise decisions because you're actually transformed more into the person of Jesus. And so you begin to ask questions as you're as you're facing a, a dilemma. You, You think about things, so for example, like how does the fact that, um, how does the fact that Jesus has come, Jesus is going to come again, and I'm going to have a new heaven and a new earth to dwell in, how does that change how I make this decision, and how might that change my motive or the outcome of this decision compared to somebody who don't know the Lord? Okay, because people should look at the decisions you're making or the motives by which you're making them, and while there will be overlap between you and unbelievers, there should also, there should be a grid, right, that you use to choose, okay, how much am I going to save or spend or what job am I going to take or where am I going to move to or, you know, how am I going to raise my children, who am I going to date, and how am I going to behave as I date this person that looks different from the world because of this framework? Or you'll ask questions like, not even just, is there a chapter and verse, but, would making this decision delight Jesus? Would making this decision make God happy? And that actually provides a lot of clarity, right, as we, as we become wise. And second, let's talk about wisdom on a, on a broader issue, because I think if the past two years have shown us anything, uh, one of the things has shown us, and, you know, maybe it's just because of the nature of the news and the internet, but Christians often don't use wisdom, Okay, and we've seen this in conversations about like the reckoning of racism, the history of racism in our nation, and the vestiges of it that are still affecting things. Um, discussions on politics, okay, and the way Christians discuss with one another inside the church and outside the church often aren't wise. And you you see the language that David uses here, and at the end of verse seven, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. So the idea is that the idea there is a simple person. Is naive and inexperienced, so they tend to fall into extremes with different positions, rather than saying where should I be black and white, and where is there room to be for there to be gray? You know, where where's the truth? Where do I have to admit humility and and recognizing that there are things that I just don't know? And so let's just talk about one issue, and that's the ever increasing in volume and intensity matter of the transgender discussion. Okay, there is a there's clearly a lot of uncertainty. Right, regarding this discussion inside the church and outside the church. And I know like we don't often talk about things that are more heavy like this, but we, need, we do need to talk about them from time to time because if we're not saying what God's word says about it, then where are we going to go to find out right, what does the Lord say about these things? And so what are two extremes that Christians and non-Christians tend to fall into right, as we think about those who um, really feel like they've been born into the wrong body? Well, there's one extreme, and that's to immediately condemn or mock or be afraid of people who experience gender dysphoria or who advocate for them, right? And just quick to, to shut them down, right? You're, you're trying to, you know, stifle our rights and change how I speak and, and all these kinds of things, right? So that, that's what you could say, like the hyper-conservative extreme. And then you have what you could call the hyper-liberal end of the spectrum, which is to basically give full credence to the sovereignty of desire, and say that to even disagree with any desire that a person has is tantamount to oppression, right? And so we need to let anybody, even if they're a a 12-year-old, if they have a particular desire, we need to affirm that and not contradict it. So those are two extremes. Well, what does the Scripture say? Because this is one of those things where there's no chapter and verse that says, here's exactly what to do when it it comes to gender dysphoria. But does the Bible, even though this is relatively new in terms of a political debate— the bible you know because it's eternal it's, it speaks to these things it speaks to the subject in a very clear way so what are some helpful principles here where we can enter into these conversations with people that we know with incredible compassion while holding on to the truth of scripture okay so what are a few things that, that the bible says about this that can help us be wise and and loving okay the, the first thing that the scripture says and this more this is more of the truth component in Matthew 19 Jesus Christ he makes it very clear that God made men and women and men and women are equally worthy of honor because they're both made in the image of god and while they're equally worthy of honor men and women are definitely distinct okay so equally worthy of honor but they're definitely distinct so that's the first thing scripture says what does scripture also say scripture also lets us see that we don't have to cling tightly to unbiblical gender stereotypes right this is something that a lot of people are pushing back against So we see Jesus. He wasn't just the perfect human, but he was the perfect man. And Jesus, he cooked for his friends. He wept for his friends. He held babies. What does this tell us? It means that masculinity doesn't mean you need to drive a tank and eat raw steak and lift weights to be a man. (laughs) Okay, also what does it tell us about femininity? Well, We see, for example, we see Lydia. She was a businesswoman in Acts Acts 16. And then Priscilla, she was a teacher in Acts 18. And they're both commended for these things. So this means that being feminine doesn't mean you need to stay in the home and or decorate walls to be a woman. You can be very successful in business. So we don't have to hold on to certain gender stereotypes that maybe have come about, you know, in the last hundred years. Okay, so men and women, you know, definitely distinct, but we don't have to hold to stereotypes. Number three, and this is something that we miss a lot, is... Since the fall, every single one of us has had a really hard time accepting ourselves. And hey, when you see Adam and Eve in the garden, as they leave the garden in Genesis 3, they're not just alienated from God. They're alienated from nature as the weeds grow, but they're also alienated from themselves because you see them, they cover themselves with fig leaves because they're ashamed of who they are. And since that day, all of us have a hard time accepting things about ourselves. Right? So some of us wish we were thinner. Some of us wish we were larger. Others of us wish we were smarter or more savvy or more charming. Other of, others, of, others of us are deeply ashamed about certain parts of our body. We wish they looked differently. We wish they looked different. Others of us wish we had darker skin. Others of us wish we had lighter skin. Sin has not just affected just ethics, but it's, it's how we are at ease with ourselves, and so, of course, it's also going to cause, like, one form of that manifestation is going to be some of us are going to feel a sense of alienation between the body that we were born into and how we feel. And that, this idea of alienation from ourselves applies to everybody. Number four, what does the Bible say? <laughs> the scriptures tell us that we blossom not when we follow our desires, but when we follow our design. Right, not when we follow our desires, but when we follow our design. Just as a, a penguin, right, he or she may really have a desire to jump off of a high iceberg or cliff and fly. Penguins can't fly. It's not in their design. Right? Instead, they're going to flourish if they're swimming and walking instead of sprinting and flying. And in the same way, when we walk in the design that we were made for, and it's God who knows our design, that's when we blossom and flourish, And God's design will often go against the desires that we feel, every single one of us. Number five, don't worry, just two more. They're wonderful news. (laughs) This is one of the best ones. Number five, what do the scriptures tell us? They tell us that Jesus and his gospel offer life and hope to everyone. Jesus and his gospel is the most inclusive philosophy in the world. Because Jesus says the only condition for being known by God and guaranteed of the new creation in the future, being absolutely seen to the bottom and loved to the stars, is just that you come to him. That's the only condition. And it, it, it's only in Christ that you can be who you want to be. Right? It's only in Christ that you can actually grab hold of what our culture tries to gesture at when they talk about being true to yourself. And it's only in Jesus and the hope of the gospel where you, you are given a promise where in the new earth you will have a new body, well, there will be zero sense of alienation between your emotions and your body and infinite sense of inexpressible joy. And that offers for everyone. And number six, what does it tell us as believers? In addition to those first five things, it tells us that as believers, it should be a natural outflow as those who have received, not due to any merit in ourselves, but have an unfathomable inheritance due to to unfathomable grace to enter into these conversations with truth where, yes, we are born into the gender that we're given at birth, but we we should take people who experience gender dysphoria seriously and sit with them in their discomfort and ask them, instead of just jumping to, you know, solutions outside the gospel, just actually listen to them, right? Even when it may not, always be perceived as love. So do the scriptures talk about every single situation? No. Does it talk about, you know, what policies should we, should we put in place? No. But does it give us tried and true principles for entering into the space with gentleness and compassion? Absolutely. Yes, okay, so we get incredible wisdom when we listen to God's word and we know God's word. What else do we get as we listen to God's word? We don't just get wisdom, okay, knowing what to do in the gray. We also get delight. So don't you love this about how David describes uh, the word of the Lord? So see verse 7, the law of the Lord revives the soul. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, or the Bible, rejoices the heart. Verse 10, more to be desired is the Bible than gold, sweeter also than honey. Is this how you think about the Bible? (laughs) What David's saying here is it's smashing the notion that following God's word leads to anything but a full life. And as I was thinking about this, you know what's interesting is this is what David doesn't say. He doesn't say in verses 1 to 6, nature revives the soul, right? Looking at a beautiful landscape is sweeter than honey. No, he says it's the word of the Lord, it's more precious than gold. And this struck me as annoying if I'm being, because, so I love nature. So nine times out of ten, if I can choose where we're going on vacation, it's going to be like a wonderful home on a mountainside at some kind of crystal clear lake as opposed to a city. Like that's where I'm going to want to go on vacation. But David's saying here, nature doesn't fill your soul like the Lord can. And I was listening to a sermon on this uh, on this passage by a pastor named Dave Moreland. He, he's in the Acts 29 network. He, um, he pastors at a church fellowship in Denver in Colorado. He's one of Luke's old pastors. And so he was, he was talking about this psalm, and he said, so, you know, he's been doing ministry in Colorado for a long time. And he said, you know, why do so many people, especially younger people, move to Colorado? It's like, you know, Colorado's one of those places just like every millennial in Gen Z wants to go to. And usually it's because of nature, right? The beautiful landscapes, you can go snowboarding. Apparently also there's no ticks or Lyme disease there. That's amazing. Uh, no humidity there. He said, but here's what I've noticed doing ministry in Colorado. is He said, did you know that the Rocky Mountain states, so Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, to name a few— they have the highest rates of suicide and depression in the nation. Highest rates. And he said, sociologists have been doing a lot of research on this because why are people unhappy in beautiful states and not unhappy in ugly states? And he said, you know, there's a lot of theories and, you know, all of them, I think, hold partial weight. But he said, here's just what I think from being here for, you know, however long he's been there, at least 15 years. He said when people move there and they're expecting nature to fill that deep ache they have just for rest and for happiness and once the excitement of the move, you know, goes away and they're back in just the mundane aspects of life and they're still them because wherever you move, you still bring you. (laughs) Then that's when they start to just get really sad because it's, it's like if this isn't satisfying me, then what will? And that's why David's saying here it, it's not the Bible satisfies you because it's the Bible in of itself because it's the because of the person that you get to know as you study the word. And so remember, we're talking about decision making, right? In the midst of a certainty, how does this help you make good decisions? Nature, just like anything else, is a created thing. And when you look to nature or any other created thing to fill your sense of happiness, you're going to make poor decisions, because you usually think about, okay, am I going to choose a different job because this isn't satisfying me? Or am I not going to serve my spouse because they're not satisfying me? Or am I going to move here because this city's a concrete jungle and it's not satisfying me? You're generally not going to actually be listening to what God may be telling you because you're chasing a created thing to make you happy rather than God himself in his word. It's God who's sweeter than honey, not any created thing. So, how do we know what to do when we don't know what to do? We, we listen to God in creation. He holds us. We listen to God in His Word. He gives us wisdom, He gives us joy. And then, number three, and those of us more buttoned up Christians, we need this. We need to listen to God's Spirit. Uh oh, getting a little charismatic. All right. So, we need to listen to God's Spirit. Verse 12 Who can discern His errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So David asks in verse 12, who can discern his errors? That's a rhetorical question. No one can discern their errors outside of God because no one knows the, the depths of our heart more than the Lord, right? And the deepest things in us, especially the deepest errors, we're the most blind to. So what David's asking here is, Lord, help me see what I can't see, right? As I move forward in life. And so what we need to do as we think about making decisions is, We need to seek God. We need to seek the Spirit as we make decisions. Jesus promises in John 16, when he ascends, he's going to send us the Spirit to lead us into all truth. First, to show us the beauty of Christ, but then second, how do we walk as those who are in union with Christ and make wise decisions? And so, as as you're facing a decision that's unclear, you need to carve out time, especially in a distraction-full world, right, to regularly seek the Lord on what would he have you do, and maybe he's going to affirm a desire you have, but like push you to make the decision, even though if you're feeling timid, you just, you don't want to take the risk, or you need to open yourself up to him actually challenging you and saying, I know you really want this thing, but this isn't either for your good or for the good of those around you. We need to open, we need to allow the Lord to actually contradict us, because we often don't know our errors, Right? Only, only God does. And it doesn't just happen in isolation, but God's Spirit, yes, it works in prayer. Yes, sorry, it, that was a major theological error. He works in prayer. He works in, the, he works in the Spirit, but also he works in community. You know, so Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise listen to advice. So as we think about making decisions, we need to bring those in our church community, others who know the word of the Lord, to speak into our lives and help us see if we're being blind to something, or say, yeah, like, you're on the right track. And remember who's writing this psalm? I think David may have appreciated this more than anybody, <laughs> the need for community to speak into his life, to show him his errors. Like, do you guys remember one place that this happened? In Second Samuel chapter 12, David had just assaulted Bathsheba and then murdered her husband and one of his good friends, and he was completely blind to it the fact that it was wrong. And it took the loving courage of his friend Nathan to walk into David's court and say, David, you're not just making a poor decision. You're on a track to hell unless you repent and turn around. David needed a friend. And so do you when you're looking at making decisions. You need to invite people into your life to, to help you see what you can't see. And how does David end? Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a great verse just to meditate on each morning. And think about how this ties into the entire psalm. So verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And then he ends, May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. That phrase, be acceptable, that's Old Testament language for worship for glorifying God. And I think what David's saying here is, could it be possible that even more than the vast expanse of the heavens giving glory to God, could God receive more glory when a humble servant bows their knee before the cross and says, thank you for saving me, thank you for redeeming me. I'm in a situation where I don't know what to do. What I do know that you've called me to is to praise your name no matter what I do and to live in light of the gospel with everyone, with everyone in my life inside and outside the church? I think so. I think that does give glory to the Lord even more than the heavens themselves. So let's seek God in creation, in his word, and through his spirit. And let's go to him in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for how rich uh, creation is. Uh, For how delightful and rich your word is, and the fact that you indwell all of us, Lord, those who uh, know you by faith through Christ with your Holy Spirit, so that you can not only comfort us, but uh, help direct us into truth and making wise decisions. And so, pray that first and foremost, Lord, that we will delight living in the clearest callings you've called us to, to glorify your name no matter what vocation we're in, and to be in in, an intimate relationship with those inside the church and outside the church, and then to seek you as we make things in the gray. And we thank you that we can ultimately commit all these things to you and that we can't mess up our lives because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.